0: Hello and welcome to the Magpie Talk Show, a podcast about technology. I'm your host, Sam Newman. In this week's episode, I'll be talking to Aino Corey. Welcome to episode 19 of the magpie talk show. Uh, This is a long overdue episode. It's been almost three months since I managed to get the last one out and I can only apologise for the delay but um, unfortunately life has a habit of getting in the way sometimes. Uh, Since then a number of things have uh, happened for me including moving on from ThoughtWorks where I've worked for over 12 years. I'm going to be sharing some thoughts about why I made that decision soon over on my blog. Uh, but on this, with this week's episode, this time I'm chatting to Ino Corrie, who is an independent consultant who, believe it or not, develops developers, and we'll talk more about what that means in the interview itself. Um, Aino and I caught up at the Yale conference, which she helps organize, that was late last year in Sydney, we chatted about a number of things, including what being a meta-developer means, how to run conferences, diversity in IT, and the importance of retrospectives. So I hope you enjoy the episode. So we're in... Um we're at Yao Sydney. Did I get that right,
1: Yes, it is Sydney.
0: And I'm interviewing only my second guest of Yao. I've got a busy day, I've got like four interviews tomorrow I'm doing. Um, this is my second uh, interview uh, with Arno. Arno, do you want to introduce yourself?
1: I can, yes. My name is Arno Corey. I come from Denmark. I have my own little my own company called Meta Developer. And the reason why it's called Meta Developer is because I'm not a developer, but I'm developing developers because I'm teaching computer science at the university, I'm teaching how to teach computer science at the university, and I'm creating conferences like this by inviting speakers so that also develops the developers, and then I facilitate retrospectives which I think also develops developers, so that's why.
0: So it's perfectly named, you really are a meta developer.
1: I really am a meta developer.
0: And you've been involved with um, conferences uh, a lot as well, and we'll talk to you about that. I'm also really interested in in sort of um, what you're up to now, and the kind of work you're doing now, I think we spoke earlier about the, yeah. the path of being an independent con- consultant, which is interesting. Yeah. But I, I always like starting off with asking people what brought them here. Not in the biological sense, but I meant in the <laughs> what got you into this industry in the first place. What was your path into, into the whole thing? You mean computer science? Computer science, the whole bit.
1: Well, that was, um, that was a bit random, as most things in my life. always loved maths. And I was really interested in the primary and secondary school, in math, and in high school. I loved it. And um, I thought I wanted to become a math teacher because I, my experience was that there weren't that many really good math teachers in uh, primary, secondary school, and high school, even. So I wanted to change that. So I wanted to study math at university to become a high school teacher, but you had to choose another subject as well. So I could choose between economy, physics, chemistry and computer science, and, and physics and chemistry, I was not interested anymore after mm. high school, economics sounded really boring, and then it had to be computer science, because it, I had to choose one. Yeah. So I started off in computer science and mathematics, and I loved the mathematics, I didn't understand the word of the computer science uh, lectures, I had never touched a computer before, I didn't know what it was.
0: And at what age was this? I mean...
1: I was 19, and was, uh, this was 91.
0: Because I guess they know the, the system in Denmark is a bit different to all parts of the world when you hear these sorts of you know, teaching moments. and this is 19, and this is, you're, you're doing computer science by default, effectively.
1: Yes, and I didn't understand a word. And then luckily some of my teammates took me down into the basement because that's where the computers were. We didn't have computers back then. Took me in the basement and taught me how to program in a few hours, and I loved it. I really loved the power, the control of the computer. It was much easier to work with than men and other things that you can't control. So I really loved programming, and... So I sort of segued into the master in, uh, in computer science instead and then because my master's thesis was so interesting at the time it was about design patterns in object oriented languages and but there's nothing like that in the industry in Denmark at the time, this is 98. So I had to start a PhD in order to keep on working with design patterns and language constructs.
0: Uh, and because and, it's kind of interesting because that path is, I suppose it, it's atypical and, typical, and so many people I speak to, they had access to a computer when they were very young, and that was what got them into it, um, but you sort of found it at university time, which is kind of interesting. Did you finish your PhD? Yes. So you are now Dr. Cory.
1: I am now Dr. Cory, but not in Denmark. In Denmark we have another degree which is a doctor, and in Denmark this is just a PhD. Oh. oh, I see. So it was a bit sad. I really enjoyed living in England last year, because then I was a doctor. Yeah, because since then
0: you, because you then, because I think I first met you when you were working for uh, Triforce, yes. which was a this is a software consultancy originally based in Aarhus.
1: Yes, in Denmark. Yes, uh,
0: and we met there through uh, I think I was there at the last Yao conference. Yeah, J A O O. What? Because that? that's an interesting. Because that has that conference has bred a lot of other things. Can you maybe explain what JAL was and is now today?
1: So what happened was that the the, the software company that I worked for after my PhD, Trifolk, in uh, 96, 97, they really wanted to send their employees to the big conferences in America, but they did, they couldn't afford it. Uh, so they, they created the A small conference, actually it started in Copenhagen, a small conference, a European Developer Conference I think it was called, where they invited some international speakers and they um, tried to sell some tickets, which was difficult. And the year after they took it to Aarhus and then uh, they changed it into the Java and Object Oriented Conference, which is why it was called J-A-O-O. And I got involved with it in its third year because I was doing my PhD, and they created a PhD track where you could talk about uh, your subject.
0: Oh, all right. And, and so, because so, then Dow obviously got renamed on account of it being about, because even when I was there, before it got renamed, it was about a lot more than just Java. Yes. And yes. even functional programming. You're now talking yeah. about ruby functional programming. Does it doesn't really fit in a Java object-oriented no, programming. No, no.
1: And that's why we had to change the name. And I was actually against it because even though we, w- we were not solely about Java and object orientation anymore, I still think that the name was really beautiful. I liked it. And it's a bit sad to change it. And it doesn't really matter that, to me that the name doesn't fit because it's like more like a brand.
0: Mm. And, and, and that then became that then became the go-to conference. That became
1: the go-to conference. Which is
0: now all over the place. And there's an extent to which the QCon conferences almost, they, they feel very familiar, there's yes. a similar structure. And of course, we're at the Yao conference. Yeah. My understanding, it's a Yao Y-O-W. is yes. sort of a, I guess you'd say, a bastardization of the
1: old Yahoo conference name in a way. It but seems. W- what happened was that we we started our um, Trifox started their cooperation with Dave Thomas mm. because it, he was a, a speaker at the conference and he really liked the conference and he wanted to be involved, so he became involved in the program committee. And then he wanted to create a conference in Australia. So we had two Ja'oo conferences in Australia, J-A-O-O conferences. But what Dave found was that when he was talking to Australian people, they couldn't pronounce the Yao, or they said Yao instead of Yao. So he had to change the name in Australia so yes. that they would know how to pronounce uh, it.
0: Uh, but now, of course, it's named after a thing that no longer exists with that name.
1: Exactly. <laughs> and it's, it's no longer got anything to do with Trifolk. Yes. That's just Dave's thing now.
0: Yeah. Um, I mean, you've done a lot of work as, uh, you know, being involved with programme committee. What, what, I mean, what did you see are the prime responsibilities of someone being on a programme committee? I mean, what's your, what, what do you see your job as?
1: Ah, uh, yeah. Well, it's changed over the years. I think, in the beginning, we were just trying to get some, uh, some interesting speakers with some interesting subjects to speak in in Denmark, you could call it like a rural area of the world where nobody else would go unless they really had a reason. Then it changed into, right, we really need some entertaining speakers as well. It's not good enough that they're interesting and they've got interesting content, but people see it more like um, a circus in a sense that they have to be um, good at speaking. And then it turned into, well, we don't only want to give the developers what they think they need, we also want to give them what they don't know they need yet. For instance, the, we we pushed the, the U.S. experience, um, the U.S. talks into the into the conferences, even though nobody wanted to hear about it, because we thought it was important for developers. The same with the security, we tried to push that in pretty early because we thought it was good for them.
0: One of the things you've 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 sort of taken on, I suppose, over the last few years, is is taking on the role of making sure that the um, the, the I suppose the speakers at conferences are not just white. Mm-hmm middle-aged men like myself, yeah. who's, who's fast approaching middle age, and some would argue is well within it. So. You're
1: not really there yet in our book.
0: No, and I, I still dress a little bit younger than You I count us
1: as young, you get a tick. Oh, do I? Yeah. there a
0: column for that? Yeah. Actually, I have been on, I'm, I'm, I'm doing a um, uh, track, uh, hosting a couple. And the other thing I liked was, we did some delegation around that, so I've been a track host a couple of times, so I'm doing it this year. There is a column we have, which is not a white male, which yes. I think is a really useful column. Yeah. Um, so, so what are the things that you do actually to um, it, 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 well, sort of improve the diversity of your speakers? I mean, special, do you, is it, I'm assuming it's more work.
1: It is more work, it is more work. And, um, so what we normally do, in the majority of the programme committees that I'm chairing, we have a number of professionals from all over the world who are hosting a track, which means that they have to invite, say, five or six speakers within an area where they have the network and the knowledge to invite the right speakers. And then I tell them that we'd like to aim for some diversity. We don't like the white and middle-aged men. And then I get some very different reactions from the track hosts. Some of of them are on board Mm -hmm. and they really want to put in some extra work and they find people on Twitter, they find web pages, they ask in their network for female speakers. And some of them are laughing a bit in the beginning, but then when they understand that I really take it seriously, they, they try. But it is a lot more work. And it is a lot more work for several reasons. it's it's very easy to find white male speakers for technical conferences. There aren't that many um, not white male speakers and uh, you have to search a bit longer to find them. Plus, a lot of them are not speaking for several reasons. One of the reasons is that for instance a woman would probably, if she'd never seen a a female technical speaker, she'd think that that is not something that she could do. She could never aspire to become a uh, a technical speaker at an IT conference because it's not something that you do and it, not, it might not be something that she thinks about consciously but subconsciously yes it will be a part of her world
0: I know because there is that problem that I don't see other women speaking mm-hmm. so it's not something I wouldn't feel comfortable in that world at one is it's also an issue where men in general are very good self publicists
1: oh yes they are and there's some funny things with that as well so when I invite speakers to conferences normally the men will say, oh yes, I could do that, no problem, fine, I'll do that. And then, right, the week before the conference, they'll suddenly notice that their wife is giving birth the next week, or school starts, or something like that, and they have to cancel. Mm -hmm. The women, they would normally never cancel in the last minute, because they're much more conscious, I'm just generalizing wildly here, they're much more conscious about the holistic part of the conference, Mm -hmm. and they don't want to lose that chance, which might be the only chance in a year. Uh, but the problem with the women is normally that when we ask them often they'll say well I can't really I can't afford to go because my company needs me or my family needs me or there's something I need to do and I don't really have time for that and it's not part of my career plan something like that so so in that way the holistic thinking that helps us close to the conference actually is a problem for us to get them to say yes to go to the conferences
0: There's also I mean, when we were looking, I mean my wife's been heavily involved um, around hiring she used to uh, run ThoughtWorks in Australia. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, so she's, sh- where, where we sort of started a lot of our real concerted efforts to rebalance, so I think we're now to 40% of our developers are women. And those are actually developers, not people in IT, in air quotes. But she was explaining that a lot of this comes down to even things like how you structure job efforts. Yes, time, where yes, yes. Uh, a man will often apply if they satisfy one of the criteria. Mm. Women will often only apply when they satisfy all of the criteria. And it's little subtle things like that that just make things you just, it's so I think it's 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 often more work to find people as well because we're not used to thinking
1: like exactly that. yeah we have to think differently and my problem is also that well when I have a minority speaker at the conference I have to make really really sure that it's good quality because if a minority speaker does bad it's that minority who cannot do it right and it's if
0: a, a white male it's, does just a bad a bad dog, it's just a bad speaker
1: and that's a problem for all the minority situations and I think also The the role modeling should start earlier, so for me, when I started university, the first computer science course I had, I actually had a female instructor or, or a teaching assistant. And I think that helped me in believing that this is something I could actually do, because all my lecturers, all the professors were male, but she was female and I could see that she was actually finishing her masters in computer science. But I think we have to go even further back, as one of the reasons why I wanted to become a maths teacher was that I... I wanted to give better teaching for, for the girls in the school because I, it was my experience that a lot of girls when they're about 10 or 11 they stop being good at maths and people tell them girls can't do maths and, and they believe it and when something's hard they don't carry on. There are many reasons for that.
0: Um, but I've also seen studies where, I think it was a US study, where at a certain age it's not you know, when, when teachers ask a question. It's, you know, Teachers are less likely to ask a, 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 a girl for an answer than a boy for an answer. You know, excluding how many people have actually mm-hmm. put their hands up. That even at that level, yeah. teachers are less in, in those sorts of STEM classes. It's just, see, I I didn't yeah.
1: I didn't know that then when I was in school, and I don't think I consciously thought about things like that. I just I just felt that math teaching could have been better for girls and also for the for the, for the girls in high school could be better. So what I was thinking that back then was that I wanted the explanations to be different. I thought that maybe we needed different kinds of explanations, not just the one kind in the book and the kind that the teacher could, but different kinds and also the examples. When I'm teaching at computer science at the university, I often teach first-year students and I often teach the ones that have not chosen computer science and IT. I teach. The first-year students that are forced to have computer science like I had at the time, yep. mathematics, physics, chemistry, Bi- biologists, and I enjoy that because uh, they're not they're not interested in computer science or programming and I need to get them motivated to learn how to program because any kind of natural science is professional you need to be able to program there will be DSLs in some way when you're a professional. Yep. So um, I, I try to use examples that Relate to their world, like biology or physics or chemistry or geology, and I also try to think about examples that will be relevant to women as well as men. So I don't want the beer examples or the football examples. And I know there's some women out there interested in beer and football, but in general, I think we should try with the examples to be a bit more broader, be more inclusive, so that. It's very important when you're teaching that, that you relate to what is already in the brains of people. That like you can annotate information to what's already in there. The more you can do that, the more it sticks, the more the knowledge sticks, the more the motivation is there, the more they'll be curious about how can I solve this, because this is part of my world.
0: It is, um, so we do this thing called uh, Level Up, which started in Sydney. It was, uh, it was done in spare time, so ThoughtWorks run. Like night courses, for university students who want to get into programming, but there's a bit of a gap between coming out of university and being able to actually work uh, in the real world. Um, and uh, I we saw this in a different way, because we created this little JavaScript game that had some bugs, mm-hmm. but it was a Space Invaders game, you know, it's a classic space game, things shooting other things. And uh, there was one of the attendees, it was, that happened, happened to be a man, but it was like, I you really like things shooting things, and mm. so we, he changed the game to make it fire hearts, oh. and then and then the space invasor, of all exploding. Got happy and floated away. Yeah, but we sort of we had a chat about it afterwards, and was realising that, that there are things you do when you put cues and This is what computers are for.
1: Yeah, these are the games that you play with a computer. It's a yeah. shooting game or a driving game or yeah. jumping game. Or
0: and, and and so already you think this is not the world for me. I yeah. mean, I mean, do you so? I guess if you think about diversity in computing, one of the things I'm interested in is do you feel that we lose people at university as well, or are are we losing people, I mean imagine we're losing people earlier, but you still feel it's an opportunity to uh, get more people passionate about it, even at the university level as well. Well, I think we
1: lose people at all stages, if I think back to university, when I started in 91 we were 15% women, and after a year we were down to 7% women. And, and now, at the university where I teach, we're about one or two percent women starting. That's, wow, that's that, bad. That's really bad. So yeah. something's rotten in the state of Denmark, <laughs> and it's getting worse. Oh, but
0: the, the, I, I, I've seen similar drop-offs. I mean, it's drop-offs in numbers in general going into CompSci, but I hadn't seen the, the, the genders.
1: No, and I think the gender split is bad, and I think it's, so for various reasons. So when I started computer science, I did not know how to program, but a lot of my male um, teammates had mm. so 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 they could program already so of course I felt behind but I think that because of my strong interest in maths it sort of carried me through the first years until I was able to program mm. and then I didn't feel on par I never felt like I was as good as them because they had all this experience but I was more on the theoretical the language construct side and I could sort of I could shine in that direction instead
0: it's um, yeah it we sometimes meet people not in our company, but in our clients, and don't understand why we, why they should bother trying to create diverse workforces. Um, and, and the thing is, I think you should, you can have a very rational conversation about because it's the right thing to do. Mm-hmm. But there are actually some cold hard business factors. In my school ideas. Like We've got very good stats that show we have significantly better retention mm. of of, uh, of women at our company than men. And given how hard it is and how costly it is to hire, we can put a financial amount on how much money. We don't, that's not how we justify yeah. it to ourselves, but no. I think often those, I mean, there is a lot of evidence that wise is the right thing to do.
1: Yes, it is, and, but I think that personally, I see it in another way. I, I think being, being, in the, uh, being in this industry, it's, it's wonderful to be a woman in this industry, and that's what I try to tell my first year students, because I say, well, look at me. I, I have enough money, so I don't need to be married to somebody who's rich because I can make my own money in this industry. Plus, in this industry, I stick out because I'm a woman, so it's very easy for me to find some new clients for my company. Plus, I've already have, I've always had flexible times, mm. so I can I can come whenever I want and I can leave wherever I want because I can work at night time, I can work in the weekend. I just I just lived a year in Cambridge in England and I could work from there. I could work from anywhere. So if you want a job, that's good to have a family together with, I think that being being in this industry is good. So I know about all the rational solutions and all the rational explanations saying that it's good to have a diverse team, but I see it more like for the women's sake point of view, is that it, it would be better for them to be in the industry as well.
0: It's a good it's a very good point. Changing tax slightly, the other thing you mentioned in the beginning was, was sort of passion around retrospectives. Oh yes. Um, or as, as one of my old colleagues used to call it, let's have a whinge-a-thon, yeah. I, I suspect you see retrospectives a little bit differently <laughs> to that person.
1: <laughs> well, I, I think it's, there are many many reasons for having retrospectives, and um, one of the reasons is definitely that you can vent things. That's, that's a good thing.
0: Do you maybe me to explain what a retrospective is, because I'm, I'm assuming at this point I'll have. Thousands of view, listeners. Thousands of, thousands listeners. of listeners. Yeah. Um, so, so when you when we talk about a retrospective, what is it you you think of as a retrospective?
1: Well, to to put it in the shortest way possible, it's a way of inspecting what's going on and adapting to the situation at hand. So, what you normally have is that you'll have these five phases in a retrospective. The first is that you that you start the retrospective, that you sort of try to make people comfortable, you can ask what, what the trust is in the room, and you can talk about what happened since the last retrospective. So like sort of, and making everybody saying something. And the next thing is that you gather data, and here's where the venting comes in. You ask people how it went for the past two weeks, and they can either say it or put it down on a post-it notes or whatever you want to do. And, and then you, you generate insights of what has happened and, and that is where you share the experience where this, uh, this event might have been good for somebody but it might have been a bad event for somebody else and I often see at retrospectives that that somebody says oh I've forgotten about that you're right that happened so that's one thing or oh you didn't like that I thought it was great and then you can have a conversation about that and in a sense I think that the retrospectives with the post-it notes it's, it's not the point the point is to teach people to share experiences and to respect each other's experiences. Mm-hmm. And instead of laughing and saying this was funny, try to, try to be empathic about how did other people actually um, receive this uh, information or how did they react to this event. And then what happens next in a retrospective is that you decide what to do. So you have like a democratic voting in some way about what what you want to do, what experiment do you want to do to change, to adapt to the situation. And then you close the retrospective saying, so we've gone through this today and and now it's over and everything that's been said, uh, we're not going to talk about that afterwards. So I like the venting part is very important. I like the sharing part. And I've had more and more discussions with people about whether retrospectives were useful for everybody. I like retrospectives, I do private retrospectives with my family, I do them with my friends, with myself. Wherever I work, there's, there's going to be like retrospectives all over me and, and post-it notes hanging on the walls. But I can see the point that if you were in an environment where people would actually discuss things and share things and react to things, then maybe retrospectives would not be as necessary as they are. That being said, I could see very few situations where that would work. So I think that a lot of people still need that framework or that scaffolding in order to, to start talking about things, to share things.
0: And, and a lot of the art form in running a good retrospective, what I've seen, is, is adapting the exercises within that framework to the audience. There you get some people that are very really good at sharing, some people that aren't. Yeah. Um, and knowing that in some audiences, doing the picture drawing about how yeah. you felt. Is going to work in a different environment that will actually yeah. turn them up against you um i actually remember i think one of the first retrospectives i helped facilitate was one of my most memorable ones because someone drew a picture and, and it was like a stick person going through it. and they asked me ask to explain what the picture was this is a very quiet person and so yeah everyone got the room yeah, everyone had gone around and spent time and they said well i'm walking through the woods i'm lost it's late at night and behind every tree the wolf wants to eat me oh no now that was a pretty that project wasn't going well i mean as you can <laughs> guess but this, this that, that different thing that that picture yeah was a different way of teasing that out it was an enabler happened. yeah exactly yeah um uh, but it, it's very important to get everyone participating yes project it is. As well.
1: and that's one of the most interesting things about retrospectives for me is the communication part and 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 listening to what people are actually saying or what they're trying to say when they're saying something. What is it actually that they try to convey when they're using these words? And how's the energy in the room? And who's talking all the time? Who's not talking? Who's shy? Who's very dominant? And how can we, as you say, change the activities so that everybody has a say? And I, I think the beautiful thing I see in retrospectives is when somebody shares something that surprises other people and they start working on that. And, and that person has sometimes felt very bad about something that went wrong. Mm. And then when they have a chance to share it in a, in a trustful setting, they can start talking about not you are a stupid person, but rather, why did this happen? Maybe we need to change this way. So that's the beauty of retrospectives. I see when people start communicating and helping each other out. I, I need to be invisible at retrospectives. I'm just a facilitator. So I like to see people doing it on their own i thank you very much for your time yep you're welcome so that's our episode
0: i hope you enjoyed it as always you can get more details links and notes over at magpietalkshow.com please do leave a comment over at itunes it really does help other people find the show and thanks to those of you who have done so so far if you like what you've heard please remember to subscribe at itunes directly or go to magpietalkshow.com and that way you'll never miss an episode